Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study class. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins. I am substituting for Tim Jennings this morning. Tim is out in California at a church out there. So we'll want to remember. Yeah. San Francisco area. And I always want to remember to mention our website, which is quite amazing. If you've never been to ComeAndReason.com, I encourage you to go there. It is a veritable wealth of resources. You can find all three DVD presentations online there. You can watch them. Um, there's recordings of this class. Those are archived there back years and years. So you can go back and review classes here, along with the accompanying speaker notes for each of the classes. You may not know, we stay a couple of weeks ahead in the quarterly because many of our online participants use this recording and, and these notes and materials to plan their own classes, and they teach these classes in their own communities. So these printed notes are huge resources. I say that as a substitute teacher because I use them extensively. So thanks to James Eirich, we have a new valuable resource available on the website because he has taken a full five years worth of individual notes, 2010 through 2015, and combined them all into one document, one searchable document. So if you've ever left class and thought, oh, I'm going to go back and look at that and study that further, and by the time you get around to it, you can't remember when it was or what the date was or what the subject was, now you can put in keywords or search terms or even dates and things like that for five years and bring back material, quotes, things like that that we've used in this class. So let's start this morning's class with prayer. Father, we are... Grateful for the amazing spring weather, um, even though it's not spring, we'll take it. And uh, we want to ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Tim and on his congregation there in California. And because your spirit is limitless, we ask for an outpouring here as well. We want to cooperate with your gardening efforts, so we ask that you sow your seeds of truth today and that you... you do the work on our minds and our hearts so that we can be fertile soil. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are still in the quarterly rebellion and redemption. Is anybody else enjoying this great controversy quarterly as much as I am? Love this perspective. So we're looking at Lesson 7, and it's titled Jesus' Teachings and the Great Controversy. By its very definition, the Great Controversy theme is a big-picture view, probably the biggest picture. And sometimes we tend to think of it only in grand, overarching terms, because it is this giant meta-narrative that explains a large portion of our reality. But the lesson makes the point that no matter how grand or all-encompassing the Great Controversy is, or how substantial the issues are at stake, in many ways, the great controversy gets played out daily right here on our little planet, right here in our daily lives. How? How does that happen? How are we participating or playing a role in the great controversy? A battle between Christ and Satan and us constantly. A battle for what or over what? Hoping for good for yourself. 
over our hearts and minds. Just, it's a battle for our hearts and minds. And who is going to get the trust and the devotion in our hearts and minds? And we'll review again a little. What's the battle about? What was the original allegation? Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Not is God powerful, but is God good? Can he be trusted with the power? So, a couple of things I wrote down, how we can participate in this great controversy on a daily, personal level, is how we represent and reflect God's true character of love. In the way we live our lives, in the way we interact with others. How we demonstrate his healing, transforming power in our own characters. When we experience transformation of character, we are representing God's allegation, which is that my methods work, love works, my principles work to heal, to restore. So in Romans 3, 4, Paul tells us God is the one on trial. God is the one who is accused, and God is the one who will be proved innocent. Paul says, I'm going to read this text in several versions, see what you think. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. That was King James. May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and prevail when you are judged. You'll notice this is not talking about God judging. It's talking about him being judged. By whom? The universe. By the universe. By created beings. And he's being judged as trustworthy or not trustworthy. That was the New American Standard. Certainly not. God must be true even though every human being is a liar. As the scripture says, you must be shown right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. That was good news translation. Out of the remedy, God, may you be proved right and true in the hearts and minds of your intelligent creatures when you present yourself openly for their judgment. It's Romans 3, 4. Let us think of God as true, even if every living man be proved a liar. Remember the scripture, that you may be justified in your words, and you may overcome when you are judged. Nice. So again, how is this going to happen? How will he win his case and be proven right? How will he win the great controversy? We're the evidence. Evidence! It's all going to be decided based on evidence. Exhibit A, Jesus Christ. He is the most convincing evidence of the true, loving character of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And his life, death, and resurrection are the most convincing evidence that God is nothing like Satan has alleged him to be. When my character is transformed from selfish to selfless, I'm exhibit B. When you practice his methods of truth, love, and freedom... When you deal with others, you're exhibit C. So we all have a role to play in how this 
great controversy plays out. And in my mind, the one reason I'm enjoying this quarterly so much, you, you cannot have insight into this great controversy perspective and still think that your life is insignificant. In my opinion, you cannot be unsure about your purpose when you have this perspective. Even though it's not all about you, the good news isn't all about me going to heaven. I'm still vitally important. Correct. Denigrate the individual to say, it's not all about you. Which to me is fantastic. I'm so glad it's not all about me. I I don't make a very good story. It being all about God makes a really good story. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is entitled, Many Kinds of Rest. We have a, a familiar memory text. It's a passage from Matthew eleven twenty eight. It says, Come to me, all you labor who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. From the message, this text says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Does anybody feel weary and heavy laden sometimes? This concept of rest is very rich, frequently used in scripture. The Greek word for rest, anaposis, I'm pretending I'm a Greek scholar right now in case you're wondering. Uh, This word is very similar to the words used associated with the Sabbath. And this word anaposis can be used as both a noun and a verb meaning solemn rest. So the same Greek word is used in the phrase, I will give you rest and A day of rest. And we've talked about yokes in this class before. You know how I know? Because I was able to search five years of notes. (laughs) So, (laughs) what is a yoke? What's the purpose of a yoke? And how have you always thought about a yoke? A burden. A burden. I have two. Maybe because it goes on beasts of burden, but a yoke is not a burden. Correct. The yoke is a tool. It is a helpful tool. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not a harness. It's an instrument that shares the load between two animals who are carrying a burden. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. The yoke is an instrument of service. Cattle are yoked for labor. And the yoke is essential that they may labor effectively. Think about that. By this illustration, Christ teaches us that we are called to service as long as life shall last. We are to take upon his yoke that we may be co-workers with him. The yoke that binds to service is the law of God. What does that mean? That's the law of love. By its very nature, it is constant outward moving service. The great law of love revealed in Eden, proclaimed upon Sinai, and in the new covenant written in the heart, is that which binds the worker to the will of God. 
That's from Desire of Ages. And notice she didn't say the law written on tablets of stone. The law of love written on the heart in the new covenant is what binds the human worker to the will of God. By wearing his yoke and learning of him, we become like him in aspiration, in meekness and lowliness, in fragrance of character. Who doesn't want that? My character is not very fragrant. So what does it mean to yoke with Christ? Consider some of these quotations. Think about what the implications are. While God was working in Daniel and his companions to will and do of his good pleasure, they were working out their own salvation. Herein is revealed the outworking of the divine principle of cooperation. That sounds a little natural law-ish. Without which no true success can be attained. Human effort avails nothing without divine power. And without human endeavor, divine effort is with many of no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. His grace is given to work in us, to will and to do, but never as a substitute for our effort. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement, which means this is how he designed it. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor, along with divine energy, is the link that binds men up with one another and with God. The apostle says we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building or temple. Man is to work with the facilities God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. This sounds like a good thing to be yoked up with God. I can't think of anybody better to be yoked up with. Yes, Donna. I just heard this uh, week an illustration of a Belgian horse. Mm-hmm. How he can pull about 16,000 pounds by himself. Right. When he's yoked to another Belgian horse, it's much more than twice. Right. But when they're trained, and that's without being trained mm-hmm. to work together. But when they've had like about two weeks of training together, they can pull over three times wow. as much. Exponential increase, more than the sum of the parts. Isn't that true of us? A couple more quotes. This is one of our favorites from Our High Calling. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human souls. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. He does not dishonor the human understanding. Thank goodness. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill to be strenuously exercised. There's another natural law here. In searching out the truth as it is in Jesus, ye are laborers together with God. There's another quote. Lifting the cross cuts away self from the soul and places man where he learns how to bear Christ's burdens. We cannot follow Christ without wearing his yoke, in case you thought it was optional. Without lifting the cross and bearing it after him, If our will is not in accord with the divine requirements, 
We are to deny our inclinations, give up our darling desires, and step in Christ's footsteps. So how does taking on this yoke bring rest to our souls? And again, do we think it's optional? I want to go back to what you were, what you were talking about earlier in that the, um, the cooperation of the human and the divine. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone uncomfortable with the idea that this is how Christ brought out his character? Right. Because, I mean, it, in, in him, we see in that, one, in that one being, we see the human and the divine and the human in conflict with the divine, but God cooperating with the, or Christ cooperating with the divine. Right. And putting himself in harmony with his Father's will. Uh, In harmony with the will of the Father and the way he designed life to Mm -hmm. operate. Uh, And then eradicating the the sinful nature that uh, he he got from the maternal side of the equation. Right. And his promise to reproduce that in us. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, the message version of that text said, watch me. See how I do it. See how I lived. It's, it's a full example. Yes, Peggy. So how does the phrase, be ye not unequally yoked, fit into this concept? What does that imply? What do you think? You know the text. It's often used to either justify or hammer someone who might either be coupled, married, in relationship with a non-believer, or even a believer, but a different denomination. What do we think about the unequal yoking? Yes. If you're yoked with Christ, and you want to um, partner with somebody else, and they're not yoked with Christ, then that's not equal. Right. Absolutely. And just thinking about Donna's example, think about it in practical terms. If you have two oxen, two horses, one's a Clydesdale and one's a Shetland pony, and you want to yoke them together, is that going to be efficient? Is that Could you possibly yoke them together? Probably, if you make a custom yoke or something like that. But again, what's the, what's the purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? And are you going to be able to do that efficiently in that manner? Probably not. The question about being unequally yoked from uh, the <coughs> online listener... Um, you, Christ, Christ came and took on humanity. He took on the the temptations. He was tempted in every way, like we are, yet without sin, uh, and then offers this gift. So, the idea that we are yoked with Christ, being unequal, I, I think is a mistake. Yeah. Because we are equally yoked with Him. Correct. Agreed. Yes. I think that the picture of seeing the cooperation of divine divinity and humanity in Christ is being so much more effective for us where opposed to what we've always seen is how much do I have to do and then God kind of swoops down and does this mark. So right. So all you have to do is pray the believers the prayer. sinner's prayer. Other yeah. People, you know, there's so anytime you have it on on anything that smacks of what I have to do but if you say that there's a cooperation, exactly. don't get it. There's a mystery to this. We didn't understand. We can't elucidate it completely yeah. as to how it worked in Christ. But when we see it, we can learn from that and apply it. It's like explaining love. <laughs> we can talk about examples of it. Right, what it looks like. really explain Yeah. That. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, Joelle. 
I find it really interesting that uh, the online uh, listener brought up that text, Mm -hmm. because that very text is one I've been uh, thinking about a lot this week because of a friend situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that text has been misused. Agreed. And abusively a lot. And as I've been thinking about that this week, I think that um, unequally yoked is like John said, uh, a believer and a non-believer, you are unequally yoked. Mm -hmm. But within the community of believers, I think it is very important for a couple to be unified spiritually. Absolutely. Very, very important. Because that's really the base point of your marriage. Absolutely. But I think that I have seen people within the same denomination Absolutely. unequally yoked. Absolutely. And people that one may not be a baptized member of that de- denomination, mm-hmm. they are very equally yoked. Correct. So I think it's been misused, and my thoughts... Absolutely. This week on it were many times organizationally there can be a dictate that may be best left to the Holy Spirit or a, a list of them. Yeah. <laughs> no, agreed. And and I, right, I should have probably said we'll talk about that on Wednesday's lesson, which is talking about why we shouldn't judge. And that's what you're saying is very true. There's. We're talking about an outward behavior, institutional, denominational comparison. We're not talking about character. We're not talking about heart motives that could be completely equally yoked, but not match up on paper, if you know what I mean. I can tell you, had I lived in the biblical times, uh, Bible times, what my thoughts would have been for Hosea on his marriage. Right. Right. Might have advised against, perhaps. Probably would have had. Yeah, with with his best interest at heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're going to talk more on Wednesday about our role in assessing others' behaviors. Any more comments? Okay. So I was going to talk about how does taking on this yoke, which we've already decided, not a burden, positive thing, non-optional. Hebrews 5.5 in the Remedy Translation says... If they refuse the truth, if they reject the evidence I have provided, their minds will never find rest and they will never get well. So taking on this yoke, being yoked with Christ, being fertile soil, which we're going to talk about in a minute, for his seeds of truth is the only way we find rest for our souls. If we reject the truth, we won't find rest. If we surrender our lives to God, surrender our plans and our best efforts, and then surrender the outcomes to him and simply follow his directions in carrying out our duty, doesn't that remove worry, remove stress, remove anxiety from our daily lives? I think it does. We're trusting him with the outcomes, putting in our best efforts, cooperating with him, being yoked with him tying our wills to him, and then trust him with the outcomes. Monday's lesson. Planting and harvesting. 
This is a familiar parable of the sower. Contains implicit great controversy themes, as well as natural law themes. The law of sowing and reaping is a natural design law. This is likely a familiar story to most of you. Let's do a quick review. Somebody want to read the story in Matthew 13? It's in verses 3 through 8. Why do you want to read Matthew 3, 13, verses 3 through 8? And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell upon, fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit, some <coughs> hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. <clears throat> so, any thoughts on some great controversy themes revealed in this parable? Let's look at it. We've got a sower. Sower's always the same, seeds are always the same. So we have four different types of receptacle, four different types of ground. The second paragraph in Monday's lesson contains a little quote from Christ Object Lessons. But if you know anything about the book Christ Object Lessons, it's all about Christ's parables. And the entire chapter two is devoted to this parable of the sower. So we could honestly spend the whole rest of the hour in chapter two of Christ Object Lessons. Because it's really good. I highly recommend it for further study, but we'll look at a little bit of it. She said, Mrs. White says, The sower soweth the word. Christ came to sow the word of truth. Ever since the fall of man, Satan has been sowing the seeds of error. It was by a lie that he first gained control over men. And thus he still works to overthrow God's kingdom in the earth and to bring men under his power. A sower from a higher world, Christ, came to sow the seeds of truth. He who had stood in the councils of God, who had dwelt in the innermost sanctuary of the eternal, could bring to men the pure principles of truth. Ever since the fall of man, Christ had been the revealer of truth to the world. By him, the incorruptible seed, the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, is communicated to men. In that first promise spoken to our fallen race in Eden, Christ was sowing the gospel seed. But it is to his personal ministry among men and to the work which he thus established that the parable of the sower especially applies. The word of God is the seed. Every seed has in itself a germinating principle. You're aware of that, right? Every seed, plant seed, has the ability to create an entirely new plant. And we're talking about down to the DNA level. You can map genetics of a plant just like you can of a human. In it, the life of the plant is enfolded in the seed. So there is life in God's word. Christ says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. In every command and in every promise of the word of God is the power, the very life of God. 
by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. But the teacher of sacred truth can impart only that which he himself knows by experience. We're going to get a little into the the, uh, integrated evidence-based approach here. The sower sows his seed. Christ taught the truth because he was the truth. Christ taught the truth because he was the truth. His own thought, his character, his life experienced were embodied in his teaching. So with his servants. Time to get nervous. Those who would teach the word are to make it their own by a personal experience. They must know what it is to have Christ made unto them wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In presenting the word of God to others, they are not to make it a suppose so or a maybe. They should declare with the Apostle Peter, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That means if we have any hope of bringing this truth to others, we have to have experienced it ourselves personally. All right, so let's talk about the the types of soil. Yes, Wendell. Well, you know, going back to our previous mentioning, often we, we look at the sower and are worried personally about what we are up to. Mm-hmm. Okay? If we're talking about the great controversy, then then the enemy is the one who, who steals the, the word away. The enemy is one who makes our hearts hard, right. whatnot, etc. And it's not about us. Correct. You know, so much of this, we have this fear that we're a rocky soil or whatever, you know. And, you know, it's about God who, who creates in us a willingness or whatever to be able to be good soil. Right. We are. We're going to talk about who determines the type of soil. If you look at the big, the bigger picture of the soil, the sower doesn't only sow once. It sows repeatedly. Right. Repeatedly. And sometimes, sometimes the soil is better. Sometimes the soil is not. But the sower is continually sowing. And I mean, if you, do any of you garden? There's so much practical application in this. <laughs> but I mean, we're going to talk about the weeds. But I mean, literally, like what you just said, if you come in, let's say, March or April after the winter to your garden and it looks like it did last October when you left it and you just throw some seeds down, your chances of success are less than if you till the soil and turn it over and for a rose, you know what I'm saying? So yes, if I sowed three times, but I worked the earth in between each time, I'm going to get different soil. Yes. I was just going to say, when Sister White talks about schools having gardens, yeah. she says the main reason is for the spiritual lessons. Absolutely. I mean, yes, we get exercise, we get food, but the spiritual lessons are there for Totally agree. And if you've ever, and I mean, I am not a gardener, don't get me wrong. Thumbs are black. But if you've ever watched a seed split open and give its life so that another plant can live, basically, 
It is a spiritual experience, and it is miraculous, and it ha- it, every time it happens through no effort of your own. You know what I mean? Because, again, even if, I, if I'm planting seeds, I might have missed one and one fell over here, and I didn't till, and I didn't water or anything. still going to sprout, you know? So, okay, so that was a little tangent, but still gardening. So the first type of soil was the soil by the wayside. What do we think? is referenced by the soil by the wayside. One of my thoughts was the battle for the souls of men is real. And the enemy uses whatever means he can to turn people away from salvation. So in the context of the seed falling by the wayside, Mrs. White, again, this is in Christ Object Lessons, chapter 2. She wrote that the seed sown by the wayside represents the word of God as it falls upon the heart of an inattentive hearer. Like the hard-beaten path trodden down by the feet of men and beasts is the heart that becomes a highway for the world's traffic, its pleasures, and its sins. Absorbed in selfish aims and sinful indulgences, the soul is hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The spiritual faculties are paralyzed. We've studied that in this class, that every time a person sins, they're damaged, their character is damaged, their conscience is seared. The faculties by which we are capable of hearing the promptings of the Holy Spirit are damaged. She says the spiritual faculties are paralyzed. Men hear the word but understand it not. They do not discern that it applies to themselves. They do not realize their need or their danger. They do not perceive the love of Christ and they pass by the message of his grace as something that does not concern them. As the birds are ready to catch up the seed from the wayside, so Satan is ready to catch away the seeds of divine truth from the soul. He fears that the word of God may awaken the careless and take effect upon the hardened heart. Satan and his angels are in the assemblies where the gospel is preached. While angels of heaven endeavor to impress hearts with the word of God, the enemy is on alert to make the word of no effect. With an earnestness equaled only by his malice, he tries to thwart the work of the Spirit of God. While Christ is drawing the soul by his love, Satan tries to turn away the attention of the one who is moved to seek the Savior. He engages the mind with worldly schemes. He excites criticism or insinuates doubt and unbelief. The speaker's choice of language or his manner may not please the hearers, and they dwell upon these defects. Thus, the truth they need and which God has graciously sent them makes no lasting impression. So in case you forget that if you draw the curtain back, there is a war going on. I mean, she's literally describing the two (laughs) angels on your shoulder. And we've talked about in this class of the two warring factions Satan and God, who has the truth, who has evidence on their side? 100% of it. It's God. Satan has 0% of truth. He may mix truth with a lie in order to make it more palatable, but he's got 0% of the evidence. So it's understandable why he would want to snatch away every potential seed of truth Because even if the person is hardened, even if they're disinterested or not listening, the truth is 
powerful and it's moving and it has the potential to capture even someone who is not open or listening because it's compelling. Yes. I liked her phrasing in there. It said Satan fears. Uh, we don't often think of Satan yeah. as afraid. But, you know, again, and, and... He fears that the word of God may awaken the careless. In contrast with design law uh, and perfect love casts cast out all fear. fear. I, it may be that he lives... A, his, whole, his whole existence is fear. Right. That he's going to be discovered. And it makes sense that he's present in assemblies where the gospel is preached. Where else would he be concentrating his efforts? This is where the danger for him is. Okay, next type of ground mentioned was stony places. This, this, the plants sprung up quickly, but didn't have any roots, so they died quickly. The seed sown upon stony ground finds little depth of soil. The plant springs up quickly, but the root cannot penetrate the rock to find nourishment and sustain its growth, and it soon perishes. Many who make a profession of religion are stony ground hearers. Hmm. Like the rock underlying the layer of earth, the selfishness of the natural heart underlies the soil of their good desires and aspirations. Can anybody testify to that? Parables only go so far. Yes. So the sower didn't purposely waste his seed. That is correct. And so often we cannot tell by the appearance what the soil is like. Or ever. <laughs> you know, it, in farming you often can. Yes. You know, you're not going to dump your seed on the road. Correct. You know, but in, in humanity... We often cannot tell where the seed is falling. Absolutely. And this this soil reminds me of the the gardens that we worked in as children. Yeah. We grew up out Georgetown Road, you know, in this area, and by all appearances, it's nice fertile soil. And when Dad got the rototiller out there, it'd be breaking blades because <laughs> six rock. inches beneath the topsoil, there's nothing but granite. Also, the seed doesn't really decide where it's going to go. Exactly. Yes. Is it really a waste of a seed, even if you know it's that soil? I don't think so. Again, if you know what the seed represents, if the seed is the seed of truth, if the seed is the word of God, it says it will not go out and return in vain. So beside all waters, and I think that means... That we're in our lives, wherever we are, we're always so <coughs> That's correct. Either for good or bad. And what has been such a comfort to me is that we're not really responsible. No, that is our work. There's other work for the Holy Spirit to do, but that's not our work. I mean, I, I have relatives that, long story, but, you know, they worked in a mission field for 10 years with no converts. Mm, wow. You know, and many years later, they found out that there were, but... Only because they lived to be their 80s or they would never have. Exactly. Yeah. And, and often what we do in this world, we do not see the results, good or bad. That's so we correct. have to trust. This is trusting in God. If, we, if he's asked us to do something and we're doing it, he'll be responsible. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, and that's, they're not doing it for a tally of converts. Right. I hope. No, you can't. No, and I mean, we have... We, we're not the one who converts people. That's the Holy that's Spirit. That's correct. And we have examples in Scripture. You think about 
the, the examples that showed the most complete transformation, I'm thinking about Moses, I'm thinking about Saul to Paul, these folks are so recognize so much that it's not about them, that not only are they saying, I'll give up, they're saying, I'll give up my salvation. Not just, you can take me out and put me to sleep, and then I'll wake up. Mm-hmm. It's take me out of the book of life if it means saving my fellow Jews. Well, and Jesus actually lived that out, because yes. at the time of his death, as far as he could tell, he didn't have one loyal follower willing to go Yeah, out. everybody left. In terms of spreading the seed, it is, is way it comes to me is, is um, you fail 100% of the time you don't try. Yes, that is so, correct. Wonderful. Yeah. So in, in terms of spreading the seed is where, you know, we're not responsible for the outcome of that. And we, you know, God has given, each is, each is he's given us the truth. We are responsible for just spreading the truth. Yes. And letting, letting the seed do its work. We, we are, we are condemned only if, you know, if we don't try. If we don't try. Yeah, and, I totally agree. Um, you know, and some people, you know, I, you know, you, you see children, you know, want to help mommy and daddy with with spreading the seed, and they're they're doing this, <laughs> and but help, yeah, help, <laughs> but in the eyes of God, as as you know, the, the you know, take what, the good what you can out of absolutely. It. As long as you're spreading the seed, I, I believe that He's happy, and that, you know, I get to help daddy, yes, with, with the gardening and. I, but I would say our responsibility, again, the seed is the truth. So our responsibility is to make sure what we're spreading is the truth about God's character. Because I can tell you in my own life, spreading seeds of non-truth about the character of God, there, there may be no fertile soil for that. It, does, it may not take effect at all. Thank goodness. You know what I mean? Um, let's just say the truth is much more effective at germinating. Yes, Joelle. I think where we lose effectiveness on witness is when we think of it as a separate activity. We go out and do this or yeah. that, whatever it may be. Versus living our lives. true witness is living authentically. Yes. So that it doesn't matter where I am, I don't have to say I'm grocery shopping and I run into Russell and say, oh, do you know Jesus? Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's usually not the most effective Absolutely. But I think when we live authentically, you and don't practice his have principles. To advertise no, exactly. what you believe, it will emanate in how you live life. Yes. And we're going to, well, I don't know if we're going to talk about anything after Monday, but it does mention in the lesson the, the text where people come at the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, I did all of these things in your name, which I consider what you're talking about, where their ministry was a separate activity and it was perhaps an act. You know what I mean? And but there was no heart transformation, there was no character transformation. There's no exhibit A, B, or C. They can't be submitted as evidence in the trial. Okay. Let's see. We're still doing oh, we this is stony ground. Let's see. Here it is. 
This class can be easily convinced and appear to be bright converts, but they have only a superficial religion. Anybody know anyone like that? But those who in principle, those who in the parable are said to receive the word immediately do not count the cost. They do not consider what the word of God requires of them. They do not bring it face to face with all their habits of life and yield themselves fully to its control. But the stony ground hearers depend upon self instead of Christ. They trust in their good works and good impulses and are strong in their own righteousness. There are many who claim to serve God, but who have no experimental knowledge of him. Their desire to do his will is based upon their own inclination, not upon the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. Their conduct is not brought into harmony with the law of God. They profess to accept Christ as their Savior, but they do not believe that he will give them power to overcome their sins. This is typical penal substitution. They have not a personal relation with the living Savior, and their characters reveal defects, both hereditary and cultivated. Next is the thorns. Soil among thorns. The gospel seed often falls among thorns and noxious weeds. And if there is not a moral transformation in the human heart, if old habits and practices and the former life of sin are not left behind, if the attributes of Satan are not expelled from the soul, the wheat crop will be choked. The thorns will come to be the crop and will kill out the wheat. Grace can only thrive in the heart that is being constantly prepared for the precious seeds of truth. The thorns of sin will grow in any soil, including the fertile soil. They need no cultivation. Again, does anybody in here garden? This is true. Weeds will grow and flourish even without a single smidge of effort on your part. Grace can only, oh sorry, grace must be carefully cultivated. The briars and thorns are always ready to spring up. Remember when, he, when he's asked about it, he says an enemy has done this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago where all of nature groans under, under the weight of sin. Weeds are a function of, of what happened in the garden. The work of purification must advance continually. If the heart is not kept under the control of God, <clears throat> if the Holy Spirit does not work unceasingly to refine and ennoble the character, the old habits will reveal themselves in the life. Can anyone say amen? <laughs> Who here has not experienced this firsthand? Men may profess to believe the gospel, but unless they are sanctified by the gospel, their profession is of no avail. If they do not gain the victory over sin, then sin is gaining the victory over them. The thorns that have been cut off but not uprooted grow apace until the soul is overspread with them. Isn't that what the great controversy ends up being, the eradication of all sin? I think when God removes his protective powers from this earth and he no longer finds any temples to dwell in, I think that we will see really the unveiled or unremedied uh, result of sin. Okay, so let's talk about Randall's or uh, Wendell's question was that what who or what determines what kind of soil a person is? Throughout the parable of the sower, Christ represents the different results of the sowing as depending upon the soil. 
In every case, the sower and the seed are the same. Thus, he teaches that if the word of God fails of accomplishing its work in our heart and lives, the reason is to be found in ourselves. But the result is not beyond our control. True, we cannot change ourselves, but the power of choice is ours, and it rests with us to determine what we will become. The wayside, the stony ground, the thorny ground hearers need not remain as such. The Spirit of God is ever seeking to break the spell of infatuation that holds men absorbed in worldly things, and to awaken a desire for the imperishable treasure. It is by resisting the Spirit that men become inattentive or neglectful of God's Word. They are themselves responsible for the hardness of heart that prevents the good seed from taking root, and for the evil growths that check its development. The garden of the heart must be cultivated. The soil must be broken up by deep repentance for sin. Poisonous, satanic plants must be uprooted. The soil, once overgrown by thorns, can be reclaimed only by diligent labor. So the evil tendencies of the natural heart can be overcome only by earnest effort in the name and strength of Jesus. This work he desires to accomplish for us, and he asks us to cooperate with him. Again, you can see why she recommends gardening as an educational tool. Lots of spiritual applications. So the quarterly says, we need to be careful how we approach those who do not seem to respond to the gospel as we think they should. How should we always respond? With love, truth, love, and freedom. Mm -hmm. Speak the truth in love and leave people free. Let everyone be fully persuaded in their own minds. Plant the seed and let the Lord do the rest. So the pink box at the bottom of uh, Monday's lesson asks, Why do we sometimes see people just newly baptized walk out the door? Or others who simply show no interest at all? If we were going to get there, we would talk about this again on Wednesday's Not Judging Lesson. Yes? It sounds like they might still have some judgmental issues. Um, they might be focused on the outward appearance of what's going on instead of the truth that's in God's Word. Very possibly. And we've talked about in this class, do we, do we mix up sometime baptizing a person into an institution versus baptizing them into Christ or into the family of Christ and then letting the work of the Spirit work on the person through the sanctification process and clean up? perhaps some behaviors and some old habits or some thorns if we're using the gardening uh, metaphor. And like you're saying, um, you know, you can go out there and win a soul and make them twice the devil. So that's yes. falls on both parts. Agreed. And that's my other point was with their being baptized and walk, walking out the door, what version of God are we, are we teaching? What we say is not merely as effective as what we do. Right. So when you apply that to someone new yeah. that grasps what has been said, mm -hmm. if they don't see the do, yeah. it gets pretty confusing. You lose credibility pretty quickly. Yes, Karen. I think it's really important to distinguish, as the quarterly does, what's the difference between judging a person and judging the rightness or wrongness of their actions. And why is that, that a very important distinction to make? And I, I even asked the question, is it a distinction? 
What do you think? Uh, that's the question. I think oh. I think it's important to make the distinction, but I'm more curious as to how you wouldn't how you um, uh, to not distinguish between right and wrong is not doing anybody yourself or the person any favors because you're basically letting them eat arsenic. If truly what you believe in sin right. is destructive to the individual in love, in a relationship that, yes. as we've heard described, that I'd be willing to die for that person, yes. lay down my life for them in that context of relationship, to not share with them truth is criminal. Agreed. <clears throat> it's just having that relationship uh, to be the yes. rock of that discernment to happen. I come back to the, to the point that outward behavior, which is all we can see, can be very relative. You know what I mean? So, since I don't know the heart motive, if I were to look at Rahab, Mm -hmm. I would judge her behavior of lying and hiding soldiers, espionage, treason, whatever she committed, differently. Prostitution. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Then if I knew the heart motive behind it, what what her goals were that, that... she was on God's side, but didn't know all of the the best, most healthy methods yet. And I think what you're saying is, like you said, when you're in close relationship with someone in the I would give my life for you type of relationship, to not pass on advice on healthy behavior or unhealthy behavior that they might be practicing in is not a loving thing to do. I think exactly what's missing is the relationship. Absolutely. This does not come from the lobby of the church. Yes. That's not a relationship. A lot of the hurt that um, I feel like a lot of Christians today, they like to skip to the, oh, let me help that. And there's not a relationship to cushion the blow of that and say, hey, you know, this, you know, this is a stark reality. This is the stark truth. But when something is in love, God is a relational God. Yes relationships, you know, just like love, it's not something we can exactly explain. Mm-hmm. No, we can talk about it. And maybe that's that's what needs to happen, is quite literally yes. to talk about it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about that problem, but there has to be some time. You know, I think there's a reason that God <coughs> had us live, you know, for eternity, because a relationship doesn't stop. It just consistently goes on. And continues to deepen, yeah. Continues to deepen, and the fact that he, you know, will have in heaven, will have time, you know, infinity. Right. Just that, you know, the relationship only gets deeper. And, yeah. And so for a relationship, for you actually to be able to have the right, I guess, to come to a person and tell them that is you would have to earn that right by spending time with them. Agreed. And, and they can trust. Love always does what's in the best interest of the other person. And when you have that relationship, they have the confidence that what you're telling them is in for their good and in their best interest, not making a judgment. Therapeutically, it's called authorization. Interesting. When we say something to someone, you need to, or this, mm-hmm. or, you know, if we don't have the relationship, we are not authorized. It may be truth, but it isn't helpful. Right. We are not authorized. I like that. Yes. Both Jesus and the uh, Pharisees dealt with the prostitute. Mm-hmm. Different, quite none differently. Of them, none of them excused her behavior. 
And right. uh, so we could look at the example of Jesus. Jesus always would uh, try to redeem them and get them to look up instead yes. of try to put them down. And protect them, protect their reputation. Yeah, very well said. Eek. I knew we weren't going to get past Monday. Well, but we started a little late. Uh, but there's not. A, that's the break. Tuesday, building on the rock. These are all really good parables. I recommend Christ Object Lessons. Let's close class with prayer. Father, we are just, I don't know, speechless with gratitude that you have gone to such lengths to to show us who you really are and to refute the accusations um, that Satan has made. Father, we want to we want to have that experiential relationship with you so that when we share with others just by living our lives and living out your principles of truth, love, and freedom, that uh, it can be authentic. We ask that you continue to bless this class, the, the members, the families represented there, and uh, we pray for your soon coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.